The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So turn in your Bibles to the next text as we continue to work our way through Mark's gospel. Mark uh, chapter 2 verse 23 will go up into chapter 3 verse 6 today. Six centuries before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah predicted the nature of his ministry, speaking for him in prophetic voice in Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Hear again those words. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the captives, freedom from slavery. Jesus taught us all sinners are slaves to sin. Therefore, slaves to Satan, the invisible slave master. Satan has many different patterns of slavery, however, with many different foremen on his plantations of sin, many different taskmasters lashed the slaves. Now, one of the most powerful in Jesus' day was religious legalism, a harsh bondage of relentless religious obligations and duties to fulfill a pattern of works righteousness gained by the law. And the religious leaders of the day, especially the scribes and Pharisees, loaded up the people with guilt and lashed their own people relentlessly with unbending laws. Jesus came to set all people free from slavery, from bondage. Recently, I uh, looked up a photo I had thought of before uh, and then tracked it down. It was of a slave labor camp during World War II that the Nazis were running in a place in Austria called Mauthausen. It was a terrible death camp there. The death camp held a third of a million people, of which only 80,000 survived to the end of the war. And there was something called the Stairs of Death. And they led up from a quarry in which granite was carved to build the grand architectural vision of the Third Reich. The stairway itself led up out of the quarry to a rim above it, and the guards forced the prisoners to pick up blocks of granite weighing over 100 pounds and force them to put them in wooden backpacks and lift them up and then carry them up 186 steps to the top of the quarry. And the slave, slave labor were five abreast as they walked up these 186 steps. And frequently some of them in weakness would topple over backwards and take out people behind them even to their death. Now, all this kind of pictured the bondage that Israel experienced in Egypt as they built the store cities or Pharaoh, and they were lashed seven days a week, relentless labor, and the Lord looked down on their condition, it says, and was concerned about them and delivered them. Now, in Jesus' day, there were different kinds of slave drivers over the Jewish people. As I said, they were spiritual taskmasters, 
the scribes and Pharisees who made these relentless spiritual laws by which they bound the consciences of the people and forced them to work in a certain pattern for their own salvation. And Jesus talked about them in Matthew 23, verse 4. He said, the scribes and Pharisees tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not lift a finger to move them. Now, central to this spiritual slavery was the concept of God himself as a harsh taskmaster and of salvation being something earned by external obedience of the people to these man-made laws. Salvation by works with no mercy. Only the strongest survive. Like a slave labor camp with God the one holding the lash. Now one of the greatest of these forms of bondage were the Sabbath regulations. The scribes and Pharisees felt they owned that day and they multiplied the traditions of the rabbis to plant the entire day thick with laws and regulations and prohibitions that were never written in the law of Moses. And with these relentless Sabbath laws, they made the day a form of bondage, a crushing burden really to the people. Almighty God sent his only begotten son Jesus to set them free from all this. Hallelujah. Jesus sets us free. We've already celebrated. Jesus didn't come to put burdens on us. He came to take the burdens off us. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for you will, you, uh, will find my yoke is easy and my burden is light, for I am gentle and humble in heart. That's who Jesus is. And I have no idea what's going on in your lives. But as a pastor, I can't help but think that some of you must have walked in here today with crushing burdens, burdens that, you cannot, that cannot be seen, especially the burden of guilt. How can a sinner like me be righteous in the sight of a holy God? How can a sinner like me actually survive judgment day and spend eternity in heaven and not in hell? Jesus came to take that burden off you, to put it on himself and to die in your place under the wrath of God that you might be set free. And that's what I see in today's text when Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. So let's see if we can walk through that and understand it. We begin by contemplating the Sabbath legalism into which Jesus ministered. Now the origin of the Sabbath in Scripture is in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, God created heaven and earth in six days. And then in Genesis 2... 2 and 3, it says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So that's the origin of it, the theological basis of the Sabbath. Then in terms of the Jewish people and their laws, at Mount Sinai, God included a Sabbath observance as part of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Do all your work in six days and rest on the seventh. The seventh day is a Sabbath, the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Then later in the book of Exodus he gives further clarification. In Exodus 31, 17, a key verse for me today, we're going to see it three times in my sermon. 
But Exodus 31, 17, it says, The Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the basic command is do not work. Nothing more. But behind it, of course, is a sense of spiritual refreshment, of focusing on the Lord, the creator of all things, and being refreshed in him. As Isaiah the prophet said, we are to call the Sabbath a delight. Meaning, through focusing on the Lord together with the people of God, drinking in the ministry of the word in corporate worship as, as well, we are spiritually refreshed. We're renewed. But the Jewish leaders couldn't leave it at that. And so they began at a certain point in Jewish history a long history of legalism concerning the Sabbath. The Jewish rabbis over the centuries began adding additional commands to protect the law. Fence upon fence upon fence to protect the law. These additional commands are found nowhere in Scripture. They became as binding on the consciences of the people as any command found in Scripture. That's how their legalism worked. Now, these extra rabbinic traditional laws were codified in a big book called the Talmud. And it had 24 chapters of Sabbath regulations. One rabbi actually spent two and a half years of study on just one of those 24 chapters. Friends, at that rate, it would take 60 years to get through the Talmud's regulations on the Sabbath. They added dimensions and definitions and a long heritage of rabbinic interpretation on what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy and what it means not to work. So, for example, they had limits on how far you could walk on a Sabbath day. You could not walk 2,000 paces. 1,999 was fine. But 2,000 was too many. Now, this is before the electronic devices that helpfully count your steps for you. So I'm not sure who it was that was counting the steps. Anything that might be contrived as work was forbidden. On a Sabbath, for example, scribes could not carry pens. Carpenters could not touch a hammer or saw. Tailors could not have on their person a needle. All of that might tempt them to work, just to have the tools of the trade near you. No one was permitted to pick up anything heavier than a fig. If you tossed an object in the air with one hand, you had to catch it with the same hand. If you caught it with the other hand, it was considered work. So I guess jugglers are out on the Sabbath. No insects could be killed. No candle could be either lit or extinguished. No bathing was allowed because some water might slosh out of the tub and accidentally clean the floor. All farm work was illegal, especially plowing, sowing, and harvesting, which will be relevant for our text today. A woman could not look in a mirror because it's possible she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out, and that would be work. This is coming from the Talmud. Especially relevant for Jesus' healings, sick people were only allowed enough treatment to keep them alive on the Sabbath day. So if a condition were literally life-threatening, 
like someone bleeding out or drowning, they could be saved. But anything not life-threatening should wait until after the Sabbath was over. That would include a man with a shriveled hand. So we'll get to that. If someone put cotton in their ear before the Sabbath began, they could leave it there. But if it should fall out, you couldn't put it back in. Now, along with all of this, the Jews found clever ways of circumventing these rabbinic requirements. For example, as I said, you can't travel more than 1,999 paces from your home. Ah, yes, but what constitutes your home? Now, that's an interesting question. Wherever your food is would be defined as your home. So, if before the Sabbath began, you stored some food in some place 1,998 paces from your front door, that could be constituted your home as well. So you could actually double the length you could go on the Sabbath day. See how all that works? And they could carry certain household items like keys, medicines, all that kind of thing. If you connected two buildings with a string or a piece of wood, that would be considered one building. So if you had a bunch of Jewish people living in an urban setting, a, a ghetto, a certain like that, if you connected all the buildings, you could move freely in that city block on a Sabbath, no problem. And so you would see uh, Jewish communities even across streets with strings or pieces of wood connecting so that it would expand the area that you could walk on the Sabbath day. You can see how ridiculous all this could become. Once you begin that journey of legalism, it's, it never stops. Now, the problem is the scribes and Pharisees had a sense of overt ownership of this whole process. They had set themselves up in Moses' seat, felt they were interpreters of Moses' law, and they uh, had authority over all of these matters. So anyone who questioned them or challenged them was, was considered a spiritual outlaw or a blasphemer. That's why Jesus so enraged them. He didn't follow any of their additions, their man-made additions, showed no fear of them at all. And especially when it came to healings, he did not hold back at all, as we'll see even today. Now, behind all of this is the real issue of salvation. Salvation. How our sins are forgiven before God. And the concept of legalism that's so devastating. The scribes and Pharisees preached and sought to live out a salvation by works of the law. They believed that they kept the minutia of the law, they would be right before God. That was their righteousness. Along with this legalism comes the problem of religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. The scribes and Pharisees meticulously kept a man-made standard of rules and regulations, but their hearts were every bit as foul and corrupt as any pagans ever was. And so their hearts were characterized by pride, greed, lust, blasphemy within, rage, all of these things were a raging fire of wickedness within them while they're externally keeping all these laws. And so Jesus says in Matthew 23 in his seven woes, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. These external regulations do not save the soul. They do not transform the corrupt, wicked human heart. Jesus leveled the whole system. Now, Jesus' first challenge to corrupt 
uh, Sabbath legalism happened before the account we're reading today in the chronology of Jesus' ministry. Jesus did not accidentally heal on the Sabbath. Not like he forgot that it was the Sabbath. It's not like that at all. He is actively doing the work of the Father and the Father wanted him to heal on the Sabbath. He was sent to liberate the captives. And in John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man that had been paralyzed for 39 years. Remember that? He told him to pick up his mat and go home. But then the Sabbath police found him and didn't see an incredible signal miracle of God's grace. They saw him as a mat-carrying Sabbath breaker. Well, that guy in, an, I think, an unconverted state just turned Jesus into the Sabbath police and he had a debate with them right there and then about the Sabbath. And in John chapter 5, 16 through 18, it says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Wow, what an answer. What an answer. And then it says, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What they don't understand, Jesus actually personally instituted the Sabbath itself. If you understand who Jesus, the Son of God, is, and you understand the significance of John chapter 1, verse 3, through him all things were made, And without him, nothing was made that has been made. What that means is the one who rested after the creation of everything was Jesus along with his Father. So Jesus, the creator of all things, instituted the Sabbath rest to begin with. Now let's look at our text, the first case study, which is picking heads of grain. Let's look at what happened. Verse 23, chapter 2. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as the disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. First of all, this gives us an insight into just how poor these apostles were, and Jesus was. All right? Jesus had said to someone who wanted to follow him as a disciple, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Luke tells us that some wealthy women were supporting Jesus out of their means, their financial means. Jesus didn't have any money. And his followers had very little. It was a hard life. And so the disciples moving through the grain fields on the Sabbath and plucking heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands and eating them shows that they're poor. That was a Jewish form of of welfare where owners of fields are told not to harvest everything or not to go right to the edge of the field but leave some for the poor. And so by the apostles doing this, it shows they were included in the poor. It also shows how heartless the Pharisees were. They didn't care less that these poor people were moving through the grain fields and filling their empty stomachs with a few heads of grain. What they saw was a violation of the law against harvesting. So this was not a matter of thievery on their part, not at all. They were free to do it the other six days. It was a problem of Sabbath regulation. And so they challenged Jesus, verse 24. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So then Jesus gives a complex defense of the action complex defense. Not easy to fully understand, to walk through. Let's look at what he said. Verse 25, 26. He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he gave some also to his companions. 
So Jesus cited scriptural precedent, a well-known story of David, who was the true anointed king of Israel, been anointed by Samuel, but he was made to flee for, for his life because the increasingly insane King Saul did not recognize him and would not uh, embrace him as his son-in-law, and so he had to flee for his life. And so David and his men in fleeing were in great physical distress, had nothing to eat, they were extremely hungry. So David goes to the tabernacle, there was no temple in the days, but it was a tent where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the priests were carrying on the ministry there. And the priest in those days, Ahimelech, greeted him in fear. David asked if he had anything to eat uh, because he and his men were hungry. Ahimelech said, there's nothing there but the bread of the presence, which was the consecrated or holy bread put out each Sabbath by the priest, as specified in Leviticus 24. Jesus said clearly in our text, it's lawful only for the priest to eat. But the priest realized that David wasn't just any person, but was the king's son-in-law. He was a significant individual in Israel. The priest also, more importantly, recognized that no ceremony or ritual law should be greater than someone's survival, physical survival. Everything has, all the laws have to fit into a kind of a hierarchy and an order. Can't be woodenly following things stupidly that end up in strange outcomes. And so this religious requirement was not more important than feeding starving people. So all of this constitutes what we would call a how much more argument. A how much more argument. If David, the king's son-in-law, merited special consideration, and if a bending of a ceremonial law for a higher purpose, namely to feed the hungry, was acceptable, how much more Jesus... The Son of God, the Son of Man, we'll talk about that in a moment, and His disciples should be free to break, listen to this, man-made regulations that were never in God's Word. I don't know about you, but I'm convinced. If David could do that to an actual legal requirement in the law of Moses, how much more should Jesus and His disciples be free to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath and eat them? But he's not done. He then goes on to teach about the Sabbath, and he makes this amazing assertion. Then he said to them, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. At the heart of this was the failure of the Pharisees to understand the whole point of the Sabbath to begin with. What was it for? It was to bless man, to refresh him, to strengthen him, to free him for one day from the burdens of work and to allow him to refocus his mind on God and on his throne. God ceased work on the seventh day and sat down on his throne to rule the universe. And so the Sabbath was made for man to refresh himself in the Lord. So now I'm going to go back to that great verse, Exodus 31, 17. I have to tell you, this is a new insight for me. I didn't notice this until about a week and a half ago. Exodus 31, 17. It's really interesting. There again, speaking of the Sabbath, God says... The Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now that Hebrew word translated was refreshed literally is tied to breath and it could be translated that he caught his breath. That's fascinating. Six days making heaven and earth and then on the seventh, he caught his breath. I hope you find this amazing. 
If not, let me help you find it more amazing. Isaiah 40, 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, period. What do you get out of that? God's omnipotent. Does he need to catch his breath? Never. This is what theologians call an anthropomorphism, where God is portrayed like us, like the hand of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord, the eye of the Lord, this kind of thing. But God doesn't have a hand. He doesn't have an eye or a mouth. But it's so that we can understand some aspects of God and how he relates to things. God didn't need to be refreshed, but we do. The work that God did in in making heaven and earth did not tire him out. The Sabbath was instituted for us because we do get weary. And we do get worn out in our labors. And we do need to be renewed and refreshed. Especially spiritually. As it says in Psalm 23, 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. So God intended the Sabbath to restore your soul. God never intended the Sabbath to become the most oppressive, burdensome, shackled, crushing, soul-deflating day of the week. But that's what the Pharisees had made it to become. So man's welfare is above Sabbath regulations, not a slave to it. Then comes Jesus' stunning claim. Now this is amazing. Verse 28. Now I spent a long time pondering this, every word. Therefore... The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What is the logical connection between verse 27 and 28? Sabbath was not made for man, but man uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath for man. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, in order to understand the logical connection, you have to understand the significance of the title Son of Man. What does that mean that Jesus is the Son of Man? Well, it comes directly from the vision in the prophet Daniel in Daniel 7. There, this awesome vision of God up on a throne of fire, a river of fire flowing from the throne of Almighty God, ruling over all the beasts of the empires of the earth in Daniel 7. If I'm not careful, I'll just go right on to a sermon about Daniel 7. What a great chapter. But here's sovereign God ruling over tyrants and beasts and a river of fire and a hundred million angels around him, the Ancient of Days, Almighty God. And then suddenly, into the presence of Almighty God, the Ancient of Days, comes one like a son of man. Listen to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's who the Son of Man is. That's who Jesus is. He is human, Son of Man. But he is God. He's riding on the clouds and is given glory and people worship him. Number one question I would would ask a biblically literate Jewish unbeliever is who is the Son of Man in Daniel 7. I would spend all my time on that. Who is he? Jesus wants that because he called himself Son of Man over and over. As Jesus would say at the end of his ministry, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me because I am the Son of Man. That's why all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Because I am the Son of Man. 
So if they, the scribes and Pharisees, knew who he was, they would not be asking questions of him or questioning him at all. And so the logical link, because Jesus is son of man, what that means is everything pertaining to the human race is given to him. He's in charge of everything relevant to us. That's his prerogative as the son of man. So that includes, for example, being judge of all human beings. In John 5, 27, it says God has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. That's the same logic. Because he's the son of man, he gets to judge us all. He's the judge of all the earth, of all humans. And also, therefore, because he's the son of man, he gets to decide what we get to do or don't do on the Sabbath. You see that? It's up to him what we do on the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, this is a stunning bombshell. Do you not see that this is a claim to nothing less than deity? Full deity. Can you imagine anyone else in biblical history making such a claim? Can you imagine Moses calling himself Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He would never have said that. He's a servant in God's house. Can you imagine David saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath? Or any of the prophets. Can you imagine Elijah claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath? No one would make such a claim except Jesus. Jesus himself, together with his father, instituted the Sabbath rest. So as Lord of the Sabbath, he has the right to say what is permissible on the Sabbath. It's a matter of kingly authority. He's the king of all the earth, and he gets to decide what we do and don't do on the Sabbath. Friends, Jesus is God. That's what it is. Jesus is worthy of our worship, and therefore Jesus is the focus of our time on the Sabbath. He's the focus of that worship because he is almighty God in the flesh. Now the Sabbath itself is in some sense a shadow whose reality is Christ and is now fulfilled and in some sense has become obsolete. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. By his death and by his resurrection, Jesus invites all who believe in him to enter into his rest and to finish from all works of righteousness and rest finally and completely in his finished work on the cross. The author of Hebrews makes this plain in Hebrews 4. It says in Hebrews 4, 3, now we who have believed, that is in Jesus, have entered into that rest. And again, the author says a few verses later, Hebrews 4, 9 and 10, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. So we who have believed have entered that Sabbath rest, and there still remains a Sabbath rest. It's an already not yet thing. When you come to faith in Christ, you have rested from all of your works. You are righteous in God's sight because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. You have entered your Sabbath rest. But there still remains a Sabbath rest for you, and that's heaven. And so, therefore, the Mosaic regulation of the Sabbath was a shadow. Jesus is the reality. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Let me just keep it simple for our purpose right now. 
Do not let anyone judge you by what you do with the Sabbath day. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So the old covenant Sabbath was a shadow. Jesus is the reality. That shadow reality language is used in the book of Hebrews for the ceremonial laws that are fulfilled in Christ. And so the Sabbath, as the Jews observed it in the old covenant, is obsolete. Jesus has made a new Sabbath, and so from the beginning of the New Testament era on, we ceased gathering to worship on the seventh day, and it was moved over to the first day. And I think this symbolism is vital. The old covenant Jews looked backward to the old creation, the six days in which the physical universe was made, and celebrated that. We look ahead to the new creation that Jesus has won by his resurrection from the dead. We're looking ahead to a new heaven and a new earth by meeting on the first day of the week and calling it the Lord's Day. And so we do assemble to worship on the first day, not the seventh. Now, along with this comes a second case study. The man with the shriveled hand. Look at the verse, um, Mark 3, 1 through 6. I'll read it again. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, in all the Gospels in which these accounts occur, these are back-to-back. The grain fields and the shriveled hand, back-to-back. So these probably are consecutive Sabbaths. I think they're meant to be taken together. So Jesus is going around village to village in Galilee, preaching and proclaiming and working and going on the Sabbath uh, to read Scripture and to teach. Jesus' enemies at this point are starting to follow him around, to dog his steps. They want to make trouble for him. They want him to fail. They want to hang him with his own words and works. They really are after, the, after him at this point. And why is it? Well, the Sabbath is one of the number one reasons. Jesus, in John chapter 9, heals a man born blind. And he's hauled up in front of the, uh, the religious police and, and the council And it says in John 9, 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Simplistic mathematics. It's like, he's not from God, he doesn't keep our Sabbath regulations. They don't put it like that. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He's not from God. But then the next phrase in, in John 9, 16, it says, but others ask, how could a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they have a problem. They don't get it. How could anyone do that if God were not with them? It's impossible. So they don't know what to do. But the, the crowning argument of Jesus' enemies against him is he doesn't keep the Sabbath. So they are like prowling predators. They're lying in the tall grass waiting to pounce for Jesus. They're watching him. So Jesus, the most courageous man in history, attacks them head on. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus said to the man in the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. I think not only was Jesus courageous, I think the man with the shriveled hand was somewhat courageous. He knew this was heading for nothing but trouble. 
But he had this shriveled hand. The Greek word implies withered. Like I, I look at it like a, like a claw. Like it's all pulled in like this. Like you think of like a withered branch or something all pulled in and tight. And Luke tells us it was his right hand. So, and I think he tells us that to say it would be very hard for him to work. So this is a clear test case for the man's medical condition is not life-threatening. So you're going to say, look, six days you can do all your healing. Come back after the Sabbath is over. We've already seen that in Mark's gospel. They wait for the Sabbath to end for everybody to come get healed. Nope, Jesus is not going to wait. He wants this man healed right now. Because he's not only after the man with the shriveled hand and showing compassion to him. He is after that. But he wants to blow up this yoke of legalism right now. He wants to set the people free from that legalism. And so he puts them in a logical trap. Can you imagine playing word chess with Jesus? I mean, really, don't take him on. You will lose. Look at verse 4. Jesus asks him, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? So go ahead. Let's answer. Let's talk about which of these two is lawful on the Sabbath. But they remain silent. So he's seeking to expose their corrupt hearts. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he cites another one of their faulty patterns. You know, there's nothing wrong with the pattern, but there's something wrong with how they were dealing with humans. He said, if any of you has a sheep that falls in the pit on the Sabbath, you'll take it. You'll, you'll do whatever you can to get the sheep out. But you care more about your own livestock than you do other human beings. What's wrong with you? Well, the question he asks here goes deeper to their evil intentions. What are they going to do after this whole thing's done? They're going to go out, and on the Sabbath, they're going to work really hard. It's going to be intellectual work, right? They're going to do the work of plotting his murder. He sometimes would call them out straight out. You're trying to kill me. He openly said that to them sometimes. He knew what they were doing. And so he says, all right. Each of us is going to be working on the Sabbath. I'm working to heal this man, to bring life to him. You're working to kill me. Which of those two do you think is lawful? He traps them. But they didn't answer. I think this happens a lot. Well, Jesus will trap some, uh, some group of evil people, and they will not answer his question. And so Jesus has a passionate response. Look at verse 5. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. So he's very angry at them. He is an emotional man. Jesus had emotions. But unlike us, his emotions are always perfect. So Jesus looked them right in the eyes, exposed their evil corruptions, and then he's truly angry at them with a clean, pure fire of holy wrath. Their hypocrisy toward God, their lack of love for other people was pure evil, and it made Jesus angry. This is the only verse in the entire New Testament that overtly says that Jesus was angry. I think he was angry at other times, like when he made the whip and drove out all of the, the corrupt merchants in the temple area. I think he was filled with a holy anger then, but it doesn't say so. I think once he was indignant with his own disciples for not letting the children come, but it doesn't say he was angry. This says he's angry at them. And secondly, it says he was grieved. He was grieved at their stubbornness or their hardness of heart. The hard heart will not yield. And ultimately, Jesus knows where that hard-heartedness will lead. It will lead 
to the point where he will say to them while sitting on a throne of glory, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's where their legalism will lead. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He knows they're heading toward hell. And he's grieved over them. Grieved. And so, he turns to the man and he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretches out and it's instantly restored. And I don't know what happened. I think hands are amazing. I was a mechanical engineer for 10 years. That's a small package right there. And you think about all the tendons and capillaries and all of the stuff. And I've got to be careful because I don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, there it is. And all of its articulations and its movements, and they're instantly restored. Effortless, perfect healing by Jesus. So that's Jesus' passionate, compassionate, powerful response. What about his enemies? Well, they're pretty passionate too. We don't have it in Mark's gospel. In Luke 6, 11, it says they were furious. They're furious. Don't you see something wrong with that? A guy has just been healed, and they're furious. And then in verse 6 of our text, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus threatened their power. And the Herodians and Pharisees are usually enemies. The Herodians are secularists. They're Hellenists. They're Greek-speaking worldly people who linked up with Herod the Great and then his four successors to get worldly power and do well in life. A little bit like tax collectors in that regard. So true patriotic Jews would usually see in the Herodians as sellouts. But, you know, there's an old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so Jesus made enemies come together and fight. All right, well, what lessons can we take from this text? The central lesson of the entire gospel of Mark, indeed all four gospels, the infinite majesty and glory of Jesus. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is God. He is majestic. Every single one of us right now is underestimating Jesus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the infinite majesty and glory of God in bodily form. That's Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. Secondly, the true Sabbath rest is salvation through faith in Christ. The reality of the Sabbath is found in Christ. We who have believed enter that rest. I said some of you may have walked in here with terrible spiritual burdens. Maybe you're not sure that you're a Christian. You're not sure that your sins are forgiven. You don't need to do any works. Lay down those works. Give up those works. He who has entered into the rest of God has ceased from those works. Find forgiveness, perfect forgiveness in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Hear the simplicity of what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. What works did that man do? None. But simple faith in Christ led him to forgiveness of sins. So lay aside your burdens. Give them to Jesus. All your guilt. Give it to Christ. Thirdly, let's all of us watch out for this persistent danger of religious legalism. It's still with us today. Basically, there are two religions in the world. Salvation by works through religious efforts and all of that, and salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. There's a lot of different versions of that first type, but religious legalism is still with us. 
and it dogs our step as Christians. We think that whenever we're, we feel guilty and sinful and our conscience rises up against us, we need to go, go do a bunch of religious works. Kill it. Flee to the cross. That's the only righteousness that will survive judgment day. Let's get rid of any religious legalism and hypocrisy. Fourth, a lasting question. What is the best way to spend the Lord's day? Now you're like, Pastor, are you going to do this? You've been preaching already a good long while. Are we going to actually get into all the ways that Christians should and shouldn't use? the day? Look, this is probably the seventh sermon I've preached on, on the Sabbath, on the topic of the Sabbath. So I would suggest you go to twojourneys.org and look at my sermons in Hebrews 4, uh, Romans 14, Colossians 2, and all of these. We've covered all that. Isaiah, where he says, call the Sabbath a delight. I walk through lots of particularities on how Christians should sin. I think the key is in Exodus 31, 17. Whatever you do, catch your breath spiritually. Be refreshed spiritually in Christ. Certainly that will mean, it's not legalistic to say you should come to public worship every week when you're physically able. That is vital. It's not legalism to say be here and drink in God's word and worship with the people of God. That's a given. But what else? You're like, Pastor, are you going to start talking about sports like the Super Bowl or like the tournament or should we be allowed to watch sports and all that? No, I'm not, except I just kind of did. But anyway, (laughs) the idea is you have to judge yourself. It's not for the elders to judge you and what you do on the Sabbath day, but I think you should evaluate yourself. Your patterns, your Sunday patterns, do they refresh your soul in the Lord or not? Do they refresh your soul in the Lord or not? Finally, heaven is the ultimate Sabbath rest. Let me close with a question that popped in my mind and I'm not going to solve it for you, but I think it's pretty cool. Here it is. How do the glorified saints in heaven both rest from all their works and engage in the energetic labor that their resurrection bodies will be doing? How do they do both? I think they will be doing both. An eternal rest in the Lord, an energetic creative labor in the new heaven, new earth. I think that's pretty exciting, don't you? Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the complexity of the topic of the Sabbath. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel that Jesus is everything. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Father, I pray that you would enable us to flee to him and find in Christ everything we need for the salvation of our souls. That we would realize that Jesus came to take burdens off us, not to crush us with legalistic burdens. Help us to understand that. And then help us to make wise choices on the Lord's day. Wise choices that our souls would be refreshed, that we would spiritually catch our breath through a renewed vision and love of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.